Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. On today's show, we speak to Roby Damelin of the Parents Circle on the controversies surrounding the alternative Israeli-Palestinian memorial ceremony and on her own personal journey as the bereaved parent of a fallen soldier. Then we'll be checking in with Ben Samuels, Haaretz Washington, D.C. correspondent on the upcoming midterm elections and the latest bombshell revelation that the U.S. Supreme Court may be about to overturn Roe versus Wade. We're recording on the eve of Israel's Memorial Day, and in recognition of that, our guest is Roby Damelin, the spokesperson and head of international relations for the Parent Circle Families Forum, a grassroots organization that's made up of hundreds of bereaved Israeli and Palestinian families working together for reconciliation and peace. She is also a bereaved parent herself, having lost her son David to a Palestinian sniper in 2002 while he was serving in IDF reserve duty. Roby, thank you so much for coming on Haaretz Weekend. I'm pleased that you invited me. So your group is one of the two co-sponsors of tonight's joint Israeli-Palestinian Memorial Day ceremony, and that's an alternative to the main government ceremony recognizing the day. Somehow, your ceremony manages to get into the headlines every year. This year, I wrote about it on uh, Haaretz.com, the controversy surrounds the participation of Rivka Micheli and 84-year-old actress, kind of a beloved figure and broadcaster. In the past, other artists and cultural figures have been criticized and attacked for participating in the ceremony. And there have often been battles in uh, the Israeli government over allowing Palestinians who want to take part in the ceremony to participate, to cross over into Israel. And many from the right wing often stand outside and protest the event. Can you, from your perspective, Tell us about the ceremony, how it came to be in 2006, how it grew, and what the experience is like, and how it's changed. Well, I remember the very first ceremony. In those days, we also couldn't get permission for the Palestinians to come. So I stood on the stage at this very small kind of jazz club. Uh, must have been maybe 300 people. And I told the story of Nasra Khatib, who lost two sons. It was very, very much off-Broadway, I would say, and um, people were shocked. And even amongst the parents' circles, some of the parents were not altogether okay with the fact that we were doing it on actual Memorial Day. But as it grew and as people began to understand that this wasn't anything political, this was just an expression of shared pain. And so slowly, slowly, people gained hope, even not really the usual suspects. Once they actually came and once they actually heard the stories of the people taking part, there was suddenly a change in their whole attitude. Of course, there's also lovely music and poetry and interesting people who come and talk. And so I think it's such a different atmosphere from like going to the cemetery the next day where all these politicians pontificate and, you know, glorify war 
and I just sit there in horror. I really don't want to go at all. But I go because David's friends come and I feel I want to see them and be there. So this for me is a completely different way of expressing a sense of loss. And I can't explain to you what it's like to go to the cemetery on Memorial Day because there's so many people and they start pushing you and it's so undignified. I kind of dreamt the other night, you know, that we had a ceremony and there were no more new graves and that the only people crying were the people who'd lost already, but there were no more new ones. It was dignified. And the politicians that came spoke about peace and spoke about a new moral code for soldiers. What are we doing to our children that they should have to stand in a place and protect wild settler children who are attacking Arab villages and killing their sheep and cutting their trees down. Where's the education? You know, when David, my son, was found after he was killed, he had the code of ethics in his pocket. I don't know if any soldiers walk around with the code of ethics anymore, and I just wish this would be the kind of way that the politicians would talk at the cemetery, then I could identify and that there wouldn't be row after row. When David was killed, there was he was like under this beautiful tree. And now there are just endless rows after him. For what? Has the opposition to your ceremony in Israeli society, have the demonstrations, do you feel grown larger, more difficult? Like, how do you parallel kind of the growth of the popularity of the ceremony and the growth of the opposition to the ceremony? Well, actually, because it became more popular, then became more politically advantageous to stand outside and scream and throw bags of urine at David Grossman and scream and shout at us. So covered by these flags. So Yes, it's like political capital. It's the same sort of thing as the more schools that we talk in as an organization, Palestinian and Israeli, suddenly certain politicians in the opposition, mainly Itamar Ben-Gvir, which is not a surprising declaration, are there at the schools demonstrating against us. That happens often? You go to schools to well, do presentations? Well, we have now become, you see, because the more we become known the more political capital you can gain by being in the opposition. I mean, I remember when Avigdor Lieberman, before COVID, I think two years before COVID, didn't want to allow the Palestinians to come to the ceremony. And so we went to the high court, and I was all ready to give my Porsche speech, but we won. I can't describe to you what a sense of joy that was. And then, of course, the next year, Prime Minister Netanyahu, in his great wisdom, also decided to have a go and not let the Palestinians come in. And once again, we went to the High Court and once again, we won. So all of these things, it's a battle. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once you go there and once I come home, I think to myself, wow, it was worth all the work, all the drama, all the working together with another organization having to fit in everybody's wants. You wrote a very moving Facebook post that uh, went up, and it's gotten thousands of likes already. And um, I thought it would be good opportunity on the podcast for you to read what you wrote. You know, one of the things that 
I've been talking about a lot lately is there's so many new bereaved families from COVID, it doesn't have to be from conflict, but also in the Ukraine now, who never got an opportunity to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about writing. And for me, what I did, and I don't like to give advice because everybody's different and everybody mourns in a different way. But for me personally, to write letters to David is one of the greatest senses of solace. It doesn't have to be a monument to misery. Mm -hmm. It can be just something, you know, what happened on a trip or something I never told him mm -hmm. about what it was like to grow up in South Africa. This post is actually a letter to the opponents of the ceremony, yes, right? Yes, because I think we have to talk to everybody. And the fact is that we also have to learn to listen with empathy and not start screaming at each other, even if we don't agree. This is really the essence of the work we do in the parent circle. It's like, you know, I've got quite a powerfully vicious tongue, so I can say horrible things. But I learned over the years that what I did was simply close people down. They didn't want to listen to anything that I said. And I learned slowly, slowly how to say the things that I wanted to say and also to make people laugh. I know that sounds extraordinary, but I tell you that if you can get somebody who doesn't like you to laugh together with you, you'll discover that that's a bridge to the heart. It's a connection. Yes. Yeah. So I wrote this because I really wanted people to think because all of the critics of the ceremony have actually never been. So I thought this might work. Dear those who intend to join our ceremony tonight, draped in flags of Israel and shouting messages of hate, I offer you an alternative. Perhaps you could stay home and watch the ceremony online. Decide what you think of a Palestinian who donated the organs of his child who was killed by the Israeli army, but nevertheless, Israeli lives were saved. Decide what a message of understanding of the other can mean. When the sirens start exactly at 8 p.m., I will be thinking of my beloved David, who was part of the peace movement, but nevertheless went to God a settlement and gave up his life. All those in attendance will be thinking of their loved ones, who they will never see again, their eyelashes worn by the tears and their backs humped by carrying pain. If after watching you are still filled with anger, we would be happy to meet with you, and to dialogue with respect. You and all other bereaved families are entitled to commemorate the loss of lives in the manner you see fit. I ask you to allow us the same privilege. That was a really uh, impactful um, letter. Well, it's from the heart. You know, and it's those are the people that I really want to talk to because it's very nice for people to love you and say, oh, how marvelous. But the people that you want to go through a transformation and understand the cost of lives lost, because we are, I mean, we are the consequence of this madness. You reminded me when you talked about letter writing, the fact that you actually wrote a letter to the man, to the sniper who killed your son, and you reached out to his family. Can you tell us that story a little bit? Well, that's part of a long story, you know. <laughs> I, the man who first brought me to the parent circle was uh, Itzhak Frankenthal. He was the visionary who created this organization, the parent circle. And he invited me to go to a weekend in East Jerusalem to meet Palestinian and Israeli bereaved families. 
And I remember sitting around the table and looking into the eyes of the Palestinian mothers and realizing that we shared the same pain and also realizing that the tears were the same colors. So if we could stand on the stage and talk in the same voice for reconciliation and nonviolence, then surely that would be an example for the whole world. After that weekend changed my whole life, you know, from this crazy PR office with all these glamorous clients to then traveling around the world with a Palestinian to talk about reconciliation. And of course, the message of the parent circle is not local. This is a message which can be adapted all around the world. I've traveled enough to Sri Lanka, to Ireland, and even in America, where things are so polarized, and have realized that if they can adapt this message of listening with empathy and not having actually to agree, it can start a whole conversation that can make change. So I was very pleased with myself. And then I came home one night and there was a knock on my door. And I opened the door and there were three soldiers standing there, which only means one thing. So I kept slamming the door. I opened it eventually. They'd come to tell me that they caught the man who killed David. That was a really difficult time for me. You can go around the world talking about peace and reconciliation, but now there's a face and what will I do? So I decided after three months of not sleeping, because otherwise I could not work in the work that I'm doing, would not be an integrity, to write a letter to the family of the sniper, which I did. I told him in the letter who David was. He was a student at Tel Aviv University and he was studying for his master's in the philosophy of education. And he was part of the peace movement. And he was like, one of the main leaders of the uprising of the students. Can't imagine where he got that. I told him that we should meet because we owed that to our children and grandchildren. It took a very long time and eventually I got a letter back after three years from the sniper in which he told me that I was crazy. I mean, I already knew that and that I should stay away from his family. But I knew from his parents that when he was a very little boy, he saw his uncle violently killed in front of him by the Israeli army. And then he lost two uncles in the Second Intifada uprising. And so I think he went on a path of revenge. He became afterwards a great folk hero. They wrote a book about him and, and, and a movie. And actually, that was an incredible milestone in my life because once I got that, he sent it over a website and you can imagine, you can't actually imagine the feedback that I got from the right-wing settlers of great joy who read this letter saying, you know, now would I realize how stupid I am. But after I got the letter, there was this sense of giving up being a victim and of being free. And two filmmakers came to see me and they took me back to South Africa to look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and to see what lessons we could learn. And for me personally, it was also looking at what the meaning of forgiving is. So I'd met this woman, a South African white woman whose daughter was killed, and she'd gone to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and told the people who killed her daughter, I forgive you. So I wanted to know what's the meaning of I forgive you, and I went to meet her. And she said, forgiving is giving up your just right to revenge. 
And then I met the man who actually sent the people to kill her daughter. And he said, by her forgiving me, she released me from the prison of my inhumanity. And I think if people took that into their lives and understood, you know, many people cannot understand what I'm doing. They think I'm naive or, or a bit odd. It's a little against human nature. I mean, it's, it's hard for people to comprehend being able to forgive someone who killed your child or had anything to do with killing your child. Human nature is to want revenge. Problem is that most people don't know that there is no revenge. What would I not do to bring David back for two minutes? Anything. But there's nothing that I can do. And bereaved parents make a choice. You know, what is the choice that you make when you lose a child? Do you die with your child, as many families do? Not physically, but they just become stuck at home and do nothing. Or you build monuments or libraries or whatever it is you want to do. And it's not for me to tell you what you should be doing. You have to do what is best for yourself. And I don't like all these books who tell you how you should be feeling either. <laughs> you know, the stages of, of misery. Grief, yeah, yeah. I noticed uh, when I was doing my research for this that uh, your son was killed in 2002 and we're in 2022, 20 years since your son's death. And it sounds like you've been on such a journey over those 20 years. People believe or don't believe in an afterlife or people looking down on them. But knowing David as you did, if you think that somehow he would know what would happen to you and what you would be doing after his death. How do you think he would view it? Firstly, from who he was, I would imagine that he would be very happy with the work that I'm doing, but I can't imagine, you know, what he would say or, or anything. Often, I know this is going to sound a bit strange, he was a lot smarter than I am. And I had sometimes in lectures... When somebody asks me a really difficult question, I almost can feel him on my shoulder, you know, telling me what to answer. It's been an incredible journey in my life, but when I think about it, I'm also very grateful. Can you imagine what it's like to be part of somebody's life, of their transformation, from being so angry and filled with hatred to turn to understand what it is you know, to protect your children by believing in, in reconciliation and nonviolence. That is, for me, a huge privilege. And it, I don't say that lightly. Roby Damelin, it's just been an amazing honor to have you on the podcast today. Good luck at the ceremony tonight. <laughs> they don't sort of blast us off. We'll see. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up next, Haaretz correspondent Ben Samuels will be on the line with the latest developments in Washington, D.C., ahead of the upcoming midterm elections. I'm happy to welcome Ben Samuels, our intrepid Haaretz Washington, D.C. correspondent to the podcast. Ben, it's great to have you on. It's great to be here. I was planning to focus pretty much on the upcoming midterm elections in November and how they involve Israel and Jewish issues. But it seems that we've been overtaken on our podcast by breaking news events and Washington, it appears, is rocking following the leak of what is purported to be a draft of a Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe versus Wade, eliminating the right to abortion and opening the door to its ban in many states. So reaction has been strong in the 
hours since that leak uh, was announced or was revealed. What's going on in the Jewish community? Well, you know, we're recording this around 8.30 in the morning on Tuesday. So I think what has emerged in the past, you know, roughly 12 hours is just very, you know, raw emotion. And in terms of what the actual next steps look like and what that manifestation is going to be in terms of the politics and specifically in terms of the midterms, you know, that really remains to be seen. Right. But some Jewish organizations have really made this their flagship issue and are kind of organizing around it, correct? Definitely. So there are a few organizations that come to mind that, you know, have really kind of been preparing for this moment for the past few months. The one that really stands out is the National Council of Jewish Women. And, you know, they created the 73 Forward campaign and these rabbis for repro rights component to it where they've really sort of been girding for this moment. And now it's just a matter of whether or not a matter of whether or not it's going to happen because, you know, all sides are pointing to the fact that it's going to happen. Now it's how are they going to rally the community and how are they actually going to respond this sort of monumental shift in women's rights in America. So this issue will surely turn up the heat in what we were planning to discuss anyway on the podcast, the upcoming uh, congressional midterms. They're kind of already upon us, right? Primary season uh, has begun. So to paraphrase the Passover Seder, we took place not long ago. Why is this election cycle different from all other election cycles when it comes to Israel and the Jewish community? I mean, we've been writing in Haaretz and have spoken in the podcast in the past about some of the changes in the big Israel lobby, APAC, and its role in uh, American electoral politics. Can you tell us about the big change and how it's shaking things up? So, yeah, I mean, there's been a phenomenon over the past few years where, you know, pro-Israel organizations, specifically pro-Israel super PACs, have really started investing very serious money into races, both in terms of supporting pro-Israel candidates, but also taking down their more progressive critics. And a lot of these campaign ads have really been geared toward calling out these progressive candidates for issues that aren't directly related to Israel, even though they are being funded by pro-Israel super PACs. So APEX, entering into the campaign space, which we've been covering for the past few months, has really kind of brought this up to a new level. And in the past few months alone, the super PAC, at least, has already spent over a million dollars on four races alone. So APEX pro-Israel super PAC over the past four months has already spent a million dollars on four races alone that really kind of capture this exact phenomenon where they are really taking down progressive candidates based off their records on things that have nothing to do with Israel. From these four races, can you figure out what they're aiming at, who their targets are, what they're going for in terms of aiming their the fire of their new PACs and their new super PAC into the midterms? Well, I mean, obviously, some of it is, you know, they're worried about the so-called justice Democrat model of progressive person who's young. They often tend to be people of color that are in these roles. You know, not that APAC is specifically targeting because they're younger people of color. But, you know, if you look at all these four races, you know, they are taking on black women and they're taking on a Muslim woman who wears a hijab. So the optics aren't great, but, you know, there are some very interesting individual races that all have their own specific backstories where Israel isn't necessarily the key factor in the race, but it has risen to the forefront because of APAC's involvement. 
Most of the action is on the Democratic side, right? It's not really a big issue in the Republican GOP races, which are mostly people who have been endorsed by Trump versus people who have not been endorsed by Trump. Right. So, you know, for today, for example, you know, the big differences between the Ohio candidates, you know, none of them have to do with Israel. You know, there is very much a party line that you kind of need to hold if you want to have a future Republican politics. But what might happen is that based off who wins these Democratic primaries, if the progressive candidates somehow managed to, you know, overcome these significant investments from pro-Israel super PACs, then a lot of these talking points are going to be used against them in the general election by their Republican opponents, which, you know, gives a lot of the pro-Israel organization's critics a lot of ammunition against them, saying that how can you claim to be bipartisan when you're basically just preparing Republican attack points against these candidates? So speaking of the Republicans, you wrote an article focusing on the APAC PAC's non-endorsement of Liz Cheney. And uh, then that story sort of took on a life of its own and evolved. Can you tell us how that played out? Just to clarify, APAC created two different political action committees. One is a super PAC and one is your more traditional federal PAC. And the federal PAC is the one that has been endorsing these so-called election deniers over the past few months that has been garnering so much controversy. So after they issued their first wave of endorsing Democratic and Republican candidates, 37 of whom were these Republican, quote unquote, election deniers, Liz Cheney was actually the first lawmaker to really criticize APAC for putting politics over policy. Then that obviously garnered significant attention. And then when they made their second wave of endorsements and endorsed another over 70 election deniers, but didn't endorse Liz Cheney, you know, her exclusion really stuck out like a sore thumb because she, more than perhaps any House Republican, has really embodied what APAC stands for, for better or for worse. You know, she has been the most pro-Israel neoconservative lawmaker in the past few years, even before she entered Congress and she was in public service. You know, she was really championing a lot of things that were kind of, pretty far right to the extreme of the pro-Israel community. So the fact that they didn't endorse her, you know, a lot of people were saying, how can you say this is not about her criticism of Donald Trump? Obviously, I wrote that article and I highlighted her pro-Israel record and I posed a question where APAC is really saying that they are prioritizing pro-Israel politics over or pro-Israel beliefs over anything else. And how do you not endorse Liz Cheney? So I think that is a question that captured the hearts and minds of Washington. And a few days after our article, APAC endorsed Liz Cheney. There you go, Ben, changing hearts and minds. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what can you do? (laughs) What is the dynamic now between the J Street PAC and the APAC PAC? I mean, J Street and APAC obviously had different ideological slants. APAC calls itself pro-Israel. J Street calls itself pro-Israel, pro-peace. I mean, they always differentiated themselves from each other, but now we've got them actually funding candidates that are opposing each other. They're like literally opponents. Do you feel like the dynamic and the, and the war of words between the two organizations has heated up now? Definitely. And I think it's also entered a new era where, you know, it kind of legitimizes J Street in a lot of ways. You know, before they were just kind of like the enfant terrible on the scene. And, you know, they were the ones like shouting in the corner and APAC wouldn't even acknowledge them. Now the fact that they're both putting these independent expenditures into the races and endorsing candidates against each other, they're really 
going head to head in a way that has actual significant repercussions in a way that it hasn't really happened before. You know, obviously they both had been lobbying for years on different policy matters on opposing sides, but the fact that they're now getting into the campaign space, you know, APAC has no choice but to like go on the attack against groups like J Street. So, you know, it really is interesting in terms of the more macro mile high story of J Street's presence in Washington. You know, whether or not that has any sort of result electorally remains to be seen because APAC is still much more powerful. They still are putting a lot more money. Their ads are still a lot more appeal to the emotions of voters, let's say. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, the scorecard in November about, you know, how many races did J Street win versus how many races did APAC win. But I think this is sort of a battle that's really evolving in real time. And J Street's been leading the charge against APAC's endorsement of Republican candidates who did not vote to certify the elections and are, you know, part of the whole January 6th insurrection story. And one imagines now they're going to be highlighting the fact that APAC's endorsing candidate who may, you know, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, will uh, be running with the uh, efforts as they may be to increasingly limit abortion rights for women. Definitely. And, you know, I think it's really going to be interesting because, you know, I think there have been attempts to highlight other policy matters that these Republican candidates may that may be unseemly for a lot of voters. You know, like APAC put out, you know, an anodyne Happy Earth Day tweet a few weeks ago. And J Street highlighted the fact that a lot of these lawmakers are bankrolled by the fossil fuel industry and are considered, quote unquote, climate change deniers by leading environmental think tanks. And that didn't really gain on a lot of traction. And I think APEC really sort of gave itself enough cover with its attitudes or with the way that it's presenting itself that the only thing that matters is its Israel stance. And of course, there are going to be policy differences on both sides. And the democracy issue and the supporting the insurrection has really been the only thing that has really captured the attention of electorate so far. But the thing is, this Roe versus Wade development is so massive and it's so monumental that, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if APAC's opponents can really seize onto this and really turn this into something. And there are also a lot of Democratic primaries that this has always been a significant issue. And now maybe J Street, you know, really catapults the abortion matter into something that they can really seize on and use as a talking point in response to hit back at APAC. In another sign of increased polarization in the American Jewish community, kind of reflecting the uh, the partisan uh, air in America at large, Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the uh, Anti-Defamation League, made a speech this past week that you reported on. The ADL has always been sort of both sides trying to hit at anti-Semitism on the right and on the left. But how was this speech different and why was it notable? Well, this speech really represents a marker in time, I think, for the American Jewish establishment and particularly the ADL. Make no mistake about it, this speech was the ADL declaring war on Israel's left-wing critics. Just last week, the ADL released their audit of anti-Semitic findings, which is probably not the official term, but they released their finding on the past year's anti-Semitic incidents, and they said that anti-Semitic incidents have reached an all-time high since they've been recording it, and that there was a significant surge during the May 2021 Gaza war, but anti-Israel sentiments didn't make up for the majority of the incidents recorded over the year. 
And also ADL, by their own definition, says anti-Zionism is not always anti-Semitism. That changed with Jonathan's speech the other day, where he said anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, full stop. And then he accused three groups specifically of really encouraging homicidal violence against Jews because of their criticisms of Israel. This, to draw that comparison, to say that these quote-unquote extreme left organizations are the photo inverse of the extreme right organizations that made up for the majority of these all-time high and anti-Semitic incidents, there can be no mistaking that this was a very intentional speech and a very intentional point delivered by Greenblatt and that the ADL is going to use all of institutional might in the coming months to really take on these organizations. Like I said, you've been a very busy person over the past weeks. I've mentioned several topics that you've written on, but another is a new book by former Bernie Sanders aide. He was uh, Sanders' deputy campaign manager and apparently his confidant, Ari Rabin Haft. The book's called The Fighting Soul, On the Road with Bernie Sanders. So we kind of know that Bernie wasn't an APAC fan, right? He didn't show up at the uh, APAC policy conference either in 2016 or in 2020 when he was a presidential candidate. But uh, the book has some interesting anecdotes. Can you share them with us? Yeah, so there are two really interesting anecdotes for Hearts readers and podcast listeners. One is directly related to that sort of phenomenon that I mentioned earlier, where it was about the Democratic majority for Israel putting in significant money into airing ads against Bernie Sanders due to his alleged anti-Israel positions. But the ads had nothing to do with Israel and they had to do with his his inability to serve as president due to his age and his health. And, you know, he already talks about a meeting that Sanders and his staff had with DMFI chief Mark Melman where Melman really took Sanders the task over the Muslim advocates that he was associating with and how he was positioning his own heritage and his own Judaism, which, by the way, Melman completely denies Ari's accounting of this meeting. But that was one very interesting anecdote. The other one was directly about APAC, where there was a Yemen war powers resolution that was being debated and that Sanders spearheaded, and it was clear that Republicans were going to try to attach some sort of Israel amendment to it to really embarrass the Democratic Party. And Sanders' staff was in a side room in the Capitol, you know, debating strategy, and a Democratic staff leadership aide came up to them and asked if they had cleared their strategy with APAC. And then at this point, Sanders stormed over across the room. I think Ari used the word that he apparated out of nowhere, and he bellowed, no one from my staff will ask APAC for anything. And it really made clear both, you know, how Sanders views APAC and the pro-Israel lobby and how, you know, just omnipresent APAC is on the Hill with all things that have to do with Israel. You know, there is a genuine, I guess you could call it a mind meld, but it just, you cannot talk about Israel on the Hill without talking about APAC. They're completely symbiotic. And Sanders is the one for years who's really been pushing back against this and both in terms of what it means for the greater debate, but what it means for his own role in pushing progressive policies. Well, I think that the ads saying that maybe, you know, he was getting old and feeble were really misplaced because these stories make him sound very feisty and he's been very much on the scene ever since. And bringing us full circle in our conversation, he's coming out as one of the leaders of the push to pass legislation codifying Roe versus Wade as the law of the land and saying that like even the filibuster should be overturned in this effort. So Bernie Sanders, I think, and his influence isn't really going anywhere, right? 
Absolutely not. If anything, you know, the legacy that he's created over the past few years has really been seen in the type of candidates that have been running. You know, without Bernie Sanders, I don't know if a Summer Lee or a Nita Alam or an Erica Smith or a Nina Turner can ever run for Congress, let alone have like such momentum behind them. I think Bernie is making a difference in real time and we're only beginning to see how his legacy is manifesting itself. Well, Ben, it just looks like the midterms have gotten hotter and more interesting, more complicated than we'd bargained for. It definitely sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. Let's hope so. (laughs) Everybody go to Haaretz.com and read Ben's many articles on what's going on in Washington. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for having me. That wraps things up for this edition of Haaretz Weekend. Thanks to my guests, Roby Damelin and Ben Samuels, and to my producer, Shani Aviram, and editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Allison Kaplan-Sommer. Happy Israeli Independence Day to those celebrating. And until next time, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv.